our hearts together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom. <coughs> Amen. Amen. Great job. Father, we open our hearts and say, come Holy Spirit. Lord, you have been doing so much in these altars. Um, you've been doing so much out of these altars. You have been busy establishing your remnant, and we are so thankful for that. Please help us as we work through what could be, uh, uh, it's, it's not a bad sermon, but it's, it could be difficult because of all the things that need to be said that won't be able to be said. We just don't have time. I pray for understanding hearts and Holy Spirit insight on everyone that listens and help me to preach well. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was... Um, a young preacher, I discovered, at least for me, it doesn't work for everybody. And um, I always felt that if I could tell a story that would relate to the message, maybe an illustration in life, and do that to either begin the message or end it, I ended up connecting better. It was the same principle that Jesus used when he taught the parables. Um, and not that I'm even remotely in the same league as Jesus, but he understood that sometimes something thrown alongside, that's what the word parabole means, is to cast alongside. He knew that sometimes a story could help. So um, I know that you don't always have time, and sometimes it's a good story, but it just is not the best use of time. A friend of mine told me about uh, an incident, I say a friend, an acquaintance, where he was at a district council, I think I was in Illinois if I'm remembering correctly at the right time, uh, that I heard this. He had gone uh, to another district and um, as uh, to, to their general council and a superintendent was preaching and it was clear, you know, sometimes district councils can be very, very long, you know, and you get tired going to everything. And it, it was obvious that uh, he said it was an afternoon session, and he said nobody has anointing after you've just eaten a big lunch. And um, he said, I watched this pastor, who, or this superintendent, who's a master preacher, and I could tell that he could tell that he had lost everybody. You know, everybody was nodding, and everybody was trying you can tell people are tired when they're saying amen at the wrong places and things like that. And um, he did something that this pastor had never seen before. The man who was quick thinker on his feet just looked out and got to the right point in the sermon where he could connect it. He said, I just want to tell y'all, he says, by way of confession, the happiest moments of my life, many of them, were spent in the arms of another man's wife. Well, now everybody's listening. His, his, pre, his wife is listening, you know. And he, all of a sudden, he went from having lost the crowd to everybody sitting on the edge of their seat. And then he says, I'm talking about my dear mother. 
And the preacher friend of mine said, that is brilliant. I'm going to use that when I need it. Uh, here's the story is that illustrations need to be chosen well and thought out well. He was preaching and realized that he had lost his home crowd. They weren't listening to him. And there's, there are just days like that. And um, he said, well, I'll do that. And then on the spur of the moment, he said, I've got a confession. I've been here for 20 years, and I need you to know that some of the happiest days of my life have been spent in the arms of another man's wife. And, of course, the church is, his wife is, and then he looked at him and realized he couldn't remember the rest of the joke. <laughs> he looked at them again and said, let me repeat this, thinking it'll come to him. Some of the happiest moments of my life. And then his, his wife, who had heard it, realized what he was trying to do. And uh, she was trying to mouth it to him. He couldn't tell what she was doing, so that th further confused him. And he said, let me say it again, the happiest moments of my life have been spent in the arms of another man's wife. And he's looking at his wife, he just can't understand. He starts crying. And he says, oh my God, I've forgotten her name. <laughs> So the lesson from that is that sometimes witty, clever stories don't fit a message. And what I need to tell you is that I just told you a witty, clever story to tell you I have no witty, clever story <laughs> to start this sermon. We need to jump right in. This is a message today. It, it, it shouldn't be controversial. Um, sometimes we call something controversial because people don't agree with it or there's different views, that doesn't make it controversial. That just means teaching is needed or correction is needed. And I want to talk to you today about why God's people come to church. And number four on our list, they come to church to conduct kingdom business together. They come to church to conduct business together. Now, I think uh, when, when we were... Um, talking about some other issues, we realize that there are, there are some shaky ground that some doctrine has been built on. I think that, and, and I'm not fussing, but I think charismatics and Pentecostals, what we are, I believe sometimes we have a tendency to get ourselves in trouble because we're, we believe so much that God speaks and we believe so much that God is still a miracle working God. And we believe so much that God wants to move among his people that sometimes we will put a stamp of endorsement on anything and it, it hurts us. It really does. Uh, I heard a man say one time, well, I'd rather have wildfire than no fire. No, I've dealt with both. No fire, you can set people down and teach. You can set people down and pray the fire down. Wildfire, you're going to get burned. And, and it's almost always out of control. I don't think we have wildfire. Don't misunderstand me. And we pray for fire. We're praying for the fire of God to cover us. But I do believe that as we go into the next phase that God has 
for the remnant church in America. It's going to be very important that we have a basic understanding of why we come to church and not just why we come to church, but what it does it mean to come to church um, and, and conduct kingdom business. Uh, let me give you the premise that I want to deal with today before we begin to work through this. I do believe, like last week I think it was, we talked about the church being established and built on the role of apostles and prophets. And I told you what I believe that means. But what we've, uh, what we've got now is a culture where pastors are eviscerated and whatever some itinerant prophet says or some uh, perhaps self-proclaimed apostle says, churches are forcing pastors to bow to the outside influence and that's not what that passage meant. It's, it's about the establishing of the church, not the ongoing mission of the church. You look in the, the New Testament, you never find a situation where apostles, or excuse me, where um, prophets are in charge of the church or establishing. In fact, most churches today that have gotten out of balance, most of them, if you track it back, it's because they have left the establishing of doctrine to their prophets instead of apostles and pastors. And I know that that stirred up a lot of stuff, but I do believe that the church is established on the foundation of the 12 original apostles. I believe that there are apostles today, but there are no apostles like those apostles. Now there are apostles that can be incredibly influential. Paul was one. We have more writings from Paul than we have... Uh, from, from any of the other apostles. Paul was, a, Paul was an apostle on steroids, but Paul was also, you see him subjecting himself to the ministry of the apostles in Jerusalem. Um, now he also had a reality check. He said, they're not any better than I am, and I don't think they've got any more gifting than I am, but they are the apostles. I am just an apostle. Now I think you can make a pretty strong case for that. Um, I believe the church is built on the foundation of the teaching of the apostles. Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. And then we said, well, where do the prophets come in? I believe that the church is built on the words of the prophets. The, the New Testament church comes out of the Old Testament. And it's the word of the prophets that is activated by the word of the apostles that create for us a structure that operates with apostles, not the 12, but apostles nonetheless, with prophets, with evangelists, with pastors, and with teachers. And there is a proper structure. But what we're being taught today is not what you see in the book of Acts. And we want to be sure that we're balanced. Now we also want, need to go to the next thing and talk about this. And when I get through with this, I'm taking a three-week vacation. And no, I'm kidding, I'm not. But uh, um, I do want you to pray for me. My, my brother is um, not doing well. And at any moment, I may have to go to him. So I might miss a Sunday, but Pastor Corey will be ready. Um, I know, oh, I'm sorry, I'm trying to be too, I'm trying to have a visit. We'll, we'll do that at Cracker Barrel sometime. But um, um, I do need to talk about this before we get to the being touched and made whole by Jesus and being empowered to spread the gospel. We need to talk about one more thing, not to put it down, but to bring it to balance. Loved ones, balance is almost everything. 
Not, not, not everything, but it's almost everything. The most wonderful truth can be out of balance and can fail to produce what God meant it to produce. You can buy, uh, you know, a $1,500 set of tires, but if you don't have them balanced, they can shake your eye teeth out. Balance is essential. Balance is absolutely essential. And what we have right now, and, and I think this is directly the cause, or at least one of the causes, directly the cause of the conflict we had during the last election where it was decreed that this man would win or it was decreed that the other man would win and we had guaranteed prophecies that this would happen and that would happen. And I think it's because we don't understand what a decree is and the way it works and we don't understand uh, the, the role of the prophetic very well. And I think one of the things that God is doing are you still here? I think one of the things that God is doing before we go into the next season, which is going to be number one, phenomenal, and number two, horrific, God is bringing balance to the church because he wants us to know that there's power in a prophetic word. He wants us to know there's power in decree, but we decree his word. We decree what he decrees. Psalm 2, the psalmist said, I will decree the decree of the Lord. You know, I will decree the decree. And I know like in Job, there's a passage in Job that says a man will decree something and it'll be established and all that. But you've got to understand, you have to evaluate by the rest of the word everything that Job's three friends say. Because there are some things they said that flat aren't true. It's not that the Bible's not true. You see, I thought the Bible was always accurate. In Job, there's several chapters where it is an accurate recording of some really stupid things said. And please don't go building doctrine out of the conversation of Job's friends or you're going to be miserable because it conflicts and it's just not true. A lot of it, a lot of it's wonderful, but, um, and I think you understand what I'm saying. I'm not, I'm not speaking anything against the word of God, but I think we need to have some sense. I think we need to grow up. I think we need to know the word so well that we don't keep falling into these same traps over and over again. Now, um, what I want us to deal with today, and I will go through it just as quickly as I can. Um, I want us to deal with the issue of what do we do with decrees? Pastor, are, are, are there decrees? Let me say this. I'm, I'm not being belligerent to those that would disagree with me. Quite frankly, I'm being a little snarky here, but I want to treat you nicer than some of you have treated me. I, I don't want to pick a fight with you. I don't want to speak down to you. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that you don't know the word of God, but I do think we've gotten out of balance. So I'm not trying to pick a fight, but I know that we need to understand if there are decrees, what is it and when do we do it? We need to talk about the idea of ambassadorship. I went to a, um, a conference maybe a couple of years ago and it was, we are his ambassadors. We decree what the king wants. We represent him. And uh, there's some problems with that. Uh, we do decree what the king wants, but it's not as broad. It's not as uh, single leveled as a lot of people make it to be. So we want to talk about being an ambassador. And we want to talk about um, uh, what does it mean to pray the will of God? What does it mean to pray the will of God? Because there's the will of God that we know this is, we know this is what God wants. 
God is not willing that any should perish. God's not willing that any should perish. But you've got to understand that's what God wants. But we can pray, Lord, save as many as you will. Save as many as you can. But we know from Bible uh, scriptures, there are going to be many that are lost. Now, we don't believe that's, you know, we're not Calvinists. We don't believe that's because of the decree of God that some will be saved, some will be lost arbitrarily. But we know it's going to happen. We know that not everybody is going to be saved. That's universalism, it, it, which is also making a rise. We got a lot of stuff. We, we need some medicine. And um, my, my pastor used to say, well, everybody knows when you're sick, you need doctrine. And that's true. Some of you are just getting it. But we, we don't decree what we know God wants. We can pray about that. But God himself has not decreed that everyone will be saved. Some will be saved. Some will be lost. And it's in the wisdom of God. It's in the issue of free moral agency. Um, so a lot of people have said, well, we know what the will of God is because he doesn't want anybody to be lost. So we pray that everybody be saved. It's okay to pray that everybody be saved. But be careful that you don't turn that into a decree where no matter what people choose, they will be saved. You'll end up in universalism. And we need to understand that... Uh, it's okay to pray the will of God. It's okay to say, Lord, this is what your word says, and we lay hold of it. We decree that. You said no weapon formed against us shall prosper. We decree that in the name of the Lord. That's okay. But decree in our culture has taken on, this is what God said, this is what he wants, and we're not going to settle for anything less. And that can be absolutely disastrous because that's not what a decree is, and that's not the way a decree works. It's just a modernization of the old name it and claim it theology. Whatever I see as good for me becomes the will of God. And I know that God always wants his will done. So I'm going to make this decree. And loved ones, the thing that makes this so difficult is there are decrees we ought to make. But we've just used that word to bring in everything that we want. And we've, we've used decrees to create a perfect world. You say, well, there is a decree. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We decree that. No, you're not decreeing that. You're praying for that. There's a big difference. You're praying for that. You can decree that all day, but until the kingdom comes, it's not going to be that way. Now, uh, I, I know that we could go in endless circles but um, that's not what this is about. This is not opening the floor to, well, what about this, that, and the other? Um, we, we're not going that way. Uh, we don't speak about things that we haven't settled the issue in our minds and in our hearts. So we're not, we're not having a what if. This is not Speaker's Corner in London where uh, there's a park in London that's called Speaker's Corner. You can talk about anything. You can blaspheme. You can do anything you want as long as you're on that platform. There are churches like that. This isn't one of them. But we do believe that we want to walk in, in truth. Now, and, and, and if we can understand that, there will be times when we say we need to decree this. We need to expect this. We need to pray over this. We need to pray this into a reality. We also need to understand from the prophetic world that sometimes God shows us what he wants in order for us to pray, but we treat it as God said, this is going to happen. 
And that's why you've got to quit jumping up and getting all excited and wetting your spiritual pants. When you get a word from the Lord, you need to decide, is this what God is saying I want you to pray about? Or is God saying this will happen? And if God doesn't say this is going to happen, you don't have the right to say it's going to happen. You say, this is what I believe we will pray about. Justin, am I okay or do I need to pass this off to you? We're okay. Okay. We'll, we'll just get up and come this way if you feel differently. Let's get started. Number one, uh, and your notes are long and I'm going to, part of it I'll read so I don't give too much commentary. Some of it I might not even get to, um, but we're going to do our best to get this settled today. Um, understanding word pictures that are a part of the puzzle. That's one of the things we're trying to do. You remember in our study about great words of the Christian faith, about conversion and, and uh, repentance and sanctification and glorification and justification. We, we made a point, we went to great lengths to make the point that salvation is not step one, step two, step three, step four, step five, step six, step seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. We said that those 12 or so words we talked about were not different events in the walk of, of Christianity, the Christian experience of salvation. The, the, the word salvation, being saved, is so big that it cannot be encapsulated in one word. It cannot be explained by one phrase. It has to be explained from so many perspectives because God doesn't just do this and God doesn't just do this and God doesn't just do this. God does this. And to understand, you've got to understand this word and this word and this word and this word. You know, that's why the Bible says you've got to understand when you're saved, you have been born again. And God is your father and you say, oh, I got it, I got it, I got it. Then the next lesson is you have been adopted. You have been brought into a family that you were not a natural part of. And you're just as much a part of the family. And it was, it was important for us to understand that some of us may think we have a right to the family of God. And some of us may feel that we don't. But God said, if that's your problem, understand you're born into the family and you're also adopted into the family. And guys, I want to tell you the same thing is true of this idea of doing kingdom business together. Now, we've got to talk about the word, not only decree, we've got to talk about the word, not only ambassador, we've got to talk about the idea of... Um, Oh, it left me that fast. I'm so, oh, oh, of ecclesia, of the church. We've got to talk about the idea of what the church means. Okay, just as salvation were viewed as a family, a farm, a flock, an army, a priesthood, a body, um, a, a family, all of that, um, the sacred words form a collective image. As far as kingdom business is concerned, no single image or word adequately portrays the whole idea. We have to think in layers we have to think in cyclical motion, not linear motion. Hebrews did that very well. We Westerners don't. We're linear thinkers. This, then this, then this, then this. Hebrew mind is this, and the, oh, there it is again. And the, oh, oh here, there it is again. Oh, and the, look at this. This is brand new. Well, there it is again. That sounds confusing to the Western mind. 
But that's the way the Hebrews, they, they were masters of understanding cyclical processing. That there's more than one expression of a truth. There's more than one layer uh, to a truth. Um, we need to understand here, I'm going to hurry. Y'all pick up, okay? We're, we need to understand the role of ecclesia. Now again, I'm not trying to be offensive. I'm trying, if you'll let me, I'm trying in humility to offer what I think is balance that we need. Um, I believe it's a mistaken notion that the main job of the church is to rule and make decrees. There is a place for that in the definition, but it is not the primary image. You, you, you will be told by most people that ecclesia was a secular word where people were called out to come together to do business for the community. Did that, is that true? Yeah, but it's one of several, it's one of several meanings of ecclesia, the called out ones. Sometimes they were called out for dinner. Sometimes they were called out to clear a field. Sometimes they were called out to do business. Sometimes they were called out because they had a community. Uh, we, we'd call it a community club with a common interest. The emphasis, I want you to hear me now. The emphasis on ecclesia is not rulers. The emphasis on ecclesia is we are called out. We are called out. Whether it was a, a political community, they were called out. Whether it was a community club, they were called out. Whether it was a religious group, they were called out. Whether it was inductees to an army, they were called out. The ecclesiology, or the, the word ecclesia, is focused around the idea of being called out. And, and I, I tell you what I believe when we are called the church, I think we need to understand this more than anything else. We are not part of this system. We are called out of Babylon. We are called out of this old world. We're in the world, but we're not of it. And we're trying to make ourselves upper management when there's a time we may function as upper management. But I want to tell you something. As soon as we make the decision from the boss, we go home. Understanding the definition of, um, well, let me, let me back up and say this. Now, again, I don't want to be offensive, but this is really gaining motion now. Some of my friends, I've been given probably a half dozen books, the idea that, well, Jesus did his work and then he sat down. And he sat down because it's now up to us to bring in the kingdom. Now, is that true? About that much? About that much slice of the pie? Yes, we cooperate with him. But again, we, we, the, the kingdom is coming not because of us, sometimes in spite of us. <laughs> Jesus is bringing the kingdom and we cooperate with him. But loved ones, I want to tell you in the ancient world and in Old and New Testament, the phrase sat down was used for a ruler coming to sit down, not to rest, but to sit down and administer justice, to sit down and make decrees. Um, when I was in the city of Dan, the ruins of the city of Dan in England, I, I sat on the throne seat of the king. Many Israeli king, Israelite kings had sat there, and it was called Jeroboam II's judgment seat. 
And I, I sat there, I got people to take pictures of me sitting on the judgment seat. I thought it might be my new picture on the website, you know, of me sitting on Jeroboam's judgment seat. And um, that way it was called Jeroboam because whenever Jeroboam came to hear the people, to make decisions, to give orders, he sat down. Whenever Lot was said to sit in the gate of the city, he was basically city councilman. He sat in the seats to make decrees. And I know that in Hebrews, you, it, it sounds like it's saying he's sitting down until everything has been done. But the context of that statement is that he has done his part and he has set everything in motion and it's not yet fulfilled, but he is sitting down, ruling, organizing, carrying things forth until it comes to its completion. God wants us to be a part, but he has never abdicated the responsibility for the kingdom of us, to us. We are not upper management. Now, it's the idea, let me, let me back up and say this. Like I mentioned Psalm 2, and that's just one of dozens he said, I will decree the, I will declare the Lord's decree. Uh, what we've got to understand is that when we do make decrees, it needs to be what God has established as a decree for us to latch onto and speak. We're not society shaping, but, but we ought to shape society. We're not government ruling, but we ought to be a voice in government. And I think what we're happening, I think what's happening is, especially in charismatic circles, people have taken a slice of truth and made it the whole pie. And somebody needs to speak to these very wonderful servants of God, these men and women that have far more giftings and talents than I've got, and they need to call them back to balance. They need to call them back to balance because we as a church, even the remnant church, are following them off the cliff. And the, the, the mess we had in the last election is nothing compared to the mess we're going to have in the coming elections if we don't get the church centered on this idea of responsibility instead of just following the word that uh, sounds best to us. Now, um, let, let, me, let me read a few verses. I got to do one more. I'm sorry. It's the idea of binding and loosing. Um, we have also taken up, are you guys still with me? Okay, that, thank you. We, we've also got to understand that we have misunderstood binding and loosing. I believe in binding and loosing. And the, the, the wording of that was so casual that you can make a case for two or three meanings of binding and loosing. But one of the verses, it's translated like this. You will... Whatever you bind will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loosed will be loosed in heaven. And I think that's the version that comes to the closest meaning of it. I don't believe Jesus said, whatever you decide, you got my, I've got your back. Whatever you decide, we'll go for it. Because you are the church and whatever you bind, heaven will bind. And you are the church, whatever you loose, heaven will loose. I've never found a scripture where God said, uh, okay, let's, let's do it your way. This is what I want to do. I, I mean, every time God decided, you're not going to come my way. You know, we want a king. You don't want a king. 
God says, you do not want a king. God says, they are rejecting me, Samuel. Samuel says, no, they're rejecting me. And he said, tell them what it'll be like to have a king. And he told them, you're going to start paying taxes. You're going to have your daughters brought into service in the palace, uh, working to cook food and clean house and all these other things. Your men are going to be brought into an army uh, against their will. And he named all these things. And they said, no, we want a king. Why do you want a king? To be like the nations around us. And this is what the Psalms say about that very incident. He granted their request but sent leanness to their soul. He granted their request. Yeah, God, sometimes we can demand and God will acquiesce. But I want to tell you, it never finishes well. It never ends up well. My daddy had a dream one time I was going to buy a car. He said, son, you don't want that car. I said, daddy, I, I love this car. And I did. It, it would have been the coolest car on campus. He said, I don't know. He said, I don't know why God would speak to me, but I had a dream last night. You don't want that car. I said, daddy, I really want the car. He said, it's your money, but you don't want that car. And I'm, I'm ashamed to say I bought the car anyway. Now, I, I should have known better than to disregard my dad's advice. And um, let me tell you, it was bad enough that I couldn't sell it when it started falling apart. And my brother was, was a lot of help. He said, I think I know somebody that'll buy this car. And I said, really? Because then I'm thinking like, now how do I sell this with integrity? Um, he said, I think the county will buy it. I said, really? I said, yeah. He said, they just got approval for some mosquito trucks and you put out so much smoke, you'd, you'd be a good mosquito truck. <laughs> I lost just about everything. I ended up selling it for parts. That's why the prophet said, oh, that you had listened to my instruction. Oh, that you had embraced my commandments. Then you would have peace like a river and your righteousness would be like the waves of the sea. And loved ones, what's happening is that because we're not fully committing to the principles of the word, we're picking and choosing which principles we like. There, there, is, there is a time to decree. But loved ones, I'm telling you, people that are telling you to decree whatever God wants, and just, just, you know, whatever he wants, whatever he suggests, whatever, that's a dangerous place to go because God has to take that and put it in our layered situation for it to be the will of God. It's not worked any other way. 2,000 years of church history, what we are being told today has never worked. It's never worked. We've never been in a place where we could decree what we wanted and heaven was bound to, uh, to, to agree. It's never worked. When it says that what you have bound on earth will, will have been bound in heaven, it's making this presupposition. Jesus said, I only do what I hear Father doing or what I see Father doing. And the assumption is that if you hear from God, you can bind and loose because you're decreeing his decree. That's the only way it works. Jesus himself did not heal everybody that he passed by on the road because he had to father, follow the Father's instructions. It wasn't that he wasn't willing to heal. It's just that he had to follow Father's instructions. We've got to do that. 
Oh, I hear it all the time. If God would just give me the gift of healing, I'd go to the hospital, start on the front, the top floor, and just work my way down. That's what I do. And that's exactly why you don't have the gift of healing. God knows that as soon as it became yours, you would, you would totally throw away his guidance, his timing, his purposes, his plan, because we know better. Or so we think. Now, Understanding, let's read, understanding the definition of ecclesia is an important component of understanding the church. Ecclesia is a Greek word defined as a called out assembly or congregation. That's true. Called out is the main thing. Ecclesia is commonly translated church in the New Testament. For example, in Acts 11.26, this is in your notes, right? Okay. Acts 11.26 says that Barnabas and Saul met with the church, ecclesia. In Antioch, in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, Paul says that he had persecuted the church, ecclesia, of God. The called out assembly then is a congregation of believers whom God has called out of the world into his wonderful light. Now guys, again, there are inferences and there are implications, but we are called the church not because we are a legal organization, we are called the church because we are called out of Babylon. With all the problems the world has when we look through the book of Revelation, when, we, when Revelation, all the evil has been expressed and the martyrs have been killed and the judgment is being poured out, there's one cry that goes out to the church. Come out of Babylon. Not go and make some new laws. Come out of Babylon. The church, whatever else she may be called to do, the church can never be the church unless she comes out of this old world and its sinful system. And I want to tell you, we've got churches full of people making decrees, calling themselves apostles or prophets or pastors or horse whisperers or whatever is, is the trend right now. But I want to tell you something. They're not living a life of sufficient holiness to have anything to do with decrees. I, I know that's harsh, but we have people that don't want to live the holy life, so they substitute it with a holy title. <laughs> Ecclesia is the basis for our word ecclesiastical. That means things pertaining to the church. And ecclesiology, the study of doctrine concerning the church. The word in the New Testament was also used to refer to any assembly of people and is addressed to the Sanhedrin. Stephen calls the people of Israel the assembly, the ecclesia in the wilderness. Even in the Old Testament, they were called the church because they were called out of Egypt. What did Hosea say? Out of Egypt have I called my son. Your walk with God, my walk with God has to do with us coming out of a system and walking in a kingdom. Now, are there other dynamics? Yes, but put them in their place. Don't let them drive the bus. In Acts 19.39, Ecclesia refers to a convening of citizens to discuss legal matters. Now, okay, there's the example people are talking about, but that's not the primary usage of ecclesia. It's just one of the uses of ecclesia. However, in most contexts, the word ecclesia is used to refer to the people who comprise the New Testament church. 
It's important that the church today understand the primary understanding of ecclesia. The church must see itself afresh as being called out by God. If the church wants to make a difference in the world, it must be different from the world. Salt is different from the food it flavors. God has called the church to be separate from sin, to embrace fellowship with other believers, to be a light to the world. God has graciously called us unto himself. Come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. A pastor the other day, uh, not, not anybody around here, he said, I've been listening to you for years. We, we were pastors in the same area decades ago. He said, I've been listening to you and you say revival's coming. And I said, yeah, well, I said, I believe a lot of people are going to be saved, but God's going to use the remnant church. I don't think God's going to use our carnality. And I think a lot of churches are, are disqualifying themselves. But yes, revival's coming. He said, I believe you. He said, I've been at this church for a long time and I'm not seeing any change. I'm not seeing any movement to revival. We've tried this program. We've tried that program. We've tried everything. What do you see that the churches need to do to bring revival? He talked about programs they had used and new computer uh, dynamics they had used. And I said, I, I said I've, I've been taken to the woodshed on this. God has really had to correct me on some of my ideas. But I said, I've become convinced that any church can grow exponentially and any church can experience the presence of God in a way it's never done it before if we'll just do three things. Three things. I said, I believe if a church will do these three things. And I said, I believe it begins with people. The people need to do it first individually. And then families need to do it. But if churches would, would just do this, I believe they would sense a difference in three months. In fact, I said six weeks to three months if the whole church does it. I believe that within a year, the church will not recognize itself and life will begin to come into that church like it's never experienced before. They'll just do these three things. <coughs> and, and I said a few other things and he said, is it expensive? And I said, yeah, it is. He said, well, you're at a big church. Y'all can afford things. And I said, oh, you can afford this. He said, what will it cost? I said, well, let me explain it to you. Then we'll talk about the cost. So he's got his legal pad out. I said, here's number one. If you as a pastor and the church people will stop honoring the Bible and start reading it, if we will stop just asking for prayer and start praying, I said, if a church will turn to prayer and the Word and do it real, Clark, this is kind of what we talked about the other day. If, if we'll turn and really do it, that will make a change that is absolutely phenomenal. God is waiting for people not that have all kinds of gifts and structures. and he, He's just waiting for somebody that will say, I'll read it. I'll pray. I'll talk to you, Lord, even in times when I don't feel like you're listening. Because the devil will go over time to make you feel like God's not listening. I said, if you can get your people to read. I said, if it's a chapter a day. I said, do you realize in your church, if you had everybody read just one chapter a day, that would be almost 300 chapters a day that got read from your congregation? I said, do you realize that if you had everybody, if they only prayed for five minutes, do you realize how many hours that heaven would be invaded with petition and praise? If you could just get them, just get them doing that. 
And then he kind of said, okay, I, I know that. I think he was ready to get to the expensive part. I said, he said, what's number two? I said, if the average church that wants revival, if everybody would tithe, you say, oh, I knew you were going to talk about money. Yeah. Do you realize that in the average church in America, I think it's 21, 22% of the people give? Uh, we're talking one out of five people give. Everybody else, they expect all the services, but they don't give. Lovelands, I want to tell you, I th- now we're way above that average, but it's still, I think we're still in a minority that tithe. We probably have a majority that give, but we still have less than 50% that tithe. Corey, does that sound right with our latest kind of stuff? Yeah, half of us don't tithe. Do you realize that, I'm, and I'm not even talking about his church, I'm talking about our church. Do you realize what would happen if everybody just said for a year, I'm going to tithe? I've never done it before, but I'm going to try it for a year. Number one, it will set you free. It'll set you free. But do you realize we wouldn't have to ask for money for the new property? We wouldn't, we wouldn't be carrying a debt of paying this church off year after year after year. Guys, I want to tell you, revival, it's easier to have revival when you don't have a bill in the mailbox. I'm not fussing at you because this is the most incredible giving church I have ever been a part of. You guys, in a time of adversity, you're holding your tithe up and missions is a little low, but you're giving to missions. You're giving to a new product, uh, uh, not product, project. This church giving is phenomenal. But do you realize that we're a church with phenomenal giving operating on half our cylinders? I mean, if everybody would just give it a shot, you say, Pastor, now you're meddling. I know, I know. But loved ones, again, pastors lead, pastors feed, pastors protect. And I wouldn't be a good pastor if I was afraid of offending you and didn't mention, you need to tithe. You need to support the church. And we're coming up on day. What would happen if we ended up with hostility from the government and we lost our tax-exempt status? Do you realize that nearly 50% by the time you figure in all the taxes, and in some states it'd be a lot worse, do you realize that almost half of our income would go to taxes up front? We couldn't afford salaries. We couldn't afford building payments. I mean, we, we are one bad political move away of being in a place where we got to decide, are we going to trust God or not? And guys, I want to say, yeah, I want to get out of debt. You know, I'm talking about passing everything over to Corey in a couple of years and just being somebody that sits on the front row. I tell you, my prayer every day is, Lord, would you do something so that two years from now when I step into the new role, I step into the new role and the church doesn't know anything. I I mean, I've never told you that. I don't think I've ever told anybody that except maybe Justin and Corey. But But I told this guy, I said, if you can get everybody to tithe, revival will break out. He said, but you're talking about money. I'm talking about moves of God. I said, believe me, God is not about money, but he knows how much we're about money. And he sees it breaking. Oh, Lord. He said, well, what's the third thing? This must be the expensive thing. I said, come clean. 
You put your sin on the altar. You teach your elders and your staff to put their sin on the altar. You start telling people that God is a holy God and he makes a decree, says let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Loved ones, I'm telling you, if you want this church to be in revival that's unrecognizable, okay, let everyone do their part by tithing. Let everyone do their part with scripture and praying to the Lord and get all this junk out of your life. And I'm telling you, that is what brings revival. He said, but the program, how much does this cost? And I said, everything. It will cost you everything. He started squalling, started crying like a baby. He said, everything. I said, everything. I said, because it's going to be, I said, that's why God keeps putting us in places where we don't know how we're going to make it. That's why we keep having bills that are way upon us and keep us awake at night, even though we're, we're ex exhibiting excellent stewardship in our homes and our church. Why? God has all power. Why? Why does God put us in these situations of absolute misery? Because he doesn't want you in those situations of absolute misery. That's why whenever he, had to, whenever he wanted to get idolatry out of the life of Israel, where did he send them? To the most idolatrous nation on the face of the earth. That's why when he's doing a work in our life, what does he do? He sends you to the exact opposite of what you want. He's not playing games with you. He's adjusting your wants. I met a man one time in Alabama, owned a donut shop. I went in and ate his, <laughs> ate his donuts, and I said, man, if I, if I worked here, I'd weigh 300 pounds. Plus, I'd be broke. I'd be buying donuts all the time. He said, oh, my, my staff, they eat all the donuts they, they want free. I said, really? He said, yeah, they, anything they want, they can have. He said, I can't give it to others, but it's for them. I said, how can you afford that? He said, when they came in, that's the first thing everybody says is, boy, I'm going to weigh 300 pounds or something like that. So I tell them, eat all the donuts you want all the time. Eat all the donuts you want. And he looked around. He said, anybody want a donut? And they said, they didn't just say, no, thank you. They said, no. <laughs> he said, I knew the only way I was going to keep profits up and keep workers here is to show them what an extreme case of donuts will do. <laughs> you say, well, God's sending me to bad places. He's trying to show you, you need me. Well, I wouldn't mind going to a donut place. Well, let me tell you, donuts are fine in moderation, but he'll even show you that a place of blessing can be counterproductive if you don't manage it. I, y'all, I, come on now, catch up with me. Let's talk for a minute about ambassadors. I'm not going to be done early. We'll go right up to last minute, probably. I'm trying. I really am. We need to understand the role of ambassadors. Now, some walk it out well, but most are a mixed bag. 
I tell you what, an ambassador is, I, I was listening on the radio and Nikki Haley, who's our governor, I mean, was our governor for a while. They introduced her as ambassador. She's ambassador to the United Nations. And there is such awe attached to the title of ambassador. Uh, I think when someone's introduced as an ambassador, it, it, we think of it as more than senator or congressman or whatever, because an ambassador has such an incredible responsibility. The, the ambassador doesn't have a lot of power. The ambassador has some votes, but the ambassador has to uh, have influence. The ambassador has to walk into a room of people that oppose him or her and convince them to change their minds. It's an amazing job. And do you know that's what God calls us ambassadors? He doesn't say we're striving to be ambassadors. He's, Paul says we are God's ambassadors. And I, if you're my age and grew up in an assembly of God church, you went to Christ's ambassadors. We are Christ's ambassadors. You know, we sang the song every Sunday afternoon or whenever we came together because we wanted to represent Christ. And it was a noble, noble title. But I want to tell you, loved ones, I think few people have truly paid the price of ambassadorship. I, I do not want to come across the day as saying you're not doing enough or you're not being enough. You know what? Uh, <laughs> we, we, we are, I was talking to someone about it and then and they sparked this in my heart so I can't claim credit for it if you like it. If you don't like it, I'll blame it on them. But um, we, we, need, we need to understand that God is not nearly as upset over our weaknesses as some of us are. Uh, do you, all things are possible if you believe. I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. That makes no sense. And what did Jesus do? I'll take that. I'll work with that. You got to start somewhere. And God performed a phenomenal miracle for a man that said, I believe, but uh, it depends on which minute you ask me. <laughs> or Thomas, poor old Thomas, doubting Thomas, the guy we pick on. He said, I will not believe. Now, it's one thing for somebody to say I'm struggling. But when people say, I will not believe, that gets you mad. You want to take their membership card. <laughs> I will not believe. He said, unless I put my finger in the nail prints and my, my hand in his side, I will not believe. Now, if I'd been Jesus and Thomas showed up the next week, I'd have said, so who do we have here? Little pouty boy. <laughs> Come over here, little pouty boy. You, you, you've seen me do this, that, and the other. But you're telling me you're not going to believe unless you invade my wounds, how dare you? That's probably why I'm not Jesus. <laughs> but do you know what Jesus did? Looking at a refusal to believe, he said, here, Thomas, put your hands in. Here's my side. He says, do what you have to do, but believe. Jesus was saying, some of the reasons for not believing are not adequate, they're not right, but I'll even meet you where you are. That's how eager he is for us to believe. Uh, loved ones, 
I'm going to tell you this. I know there are exceptions. There are people, prophets, even in our area that I respect profoundly and deeply. And I'm not saying they're walking in deception or darkness, but I do say with all respect, I don't think they're walking in balance. And somebody needs to bring them back to a place of balance. Won't be me. It's got to be somebody in their circle. But we need to pray for them, not against them. We need to pray for them because the church needs prophets and the church needs apostles. But I want to tell you this. I believe what we've got right now is that many, if not most, decrees and declarations are products of their own spirit rather than the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that it's wrong. It doesn't mean that it's a wrong decree, that what they're decreeing and declaring is wrong. But lovers, they're leading people down a path where we have taken responsibility for the kingdom on ourselves instead of calling out to God for him to take control and for us to be his servants. And I know there's a time that we stand up and lead. I know that. But I want to tell you, if something doesn't work, we need to go back to the table and see why. Ambassadors speak with the authority of the government they represent, but there must be an assurance on both sides that the wishes of the king are fully understood and accurately conveyed. Um, That's why it's so difficult to be an ambassador. You've got to not only make a decision or, or, or make a statement that represents the king, but you've got to be so familiar with the heart of the king that you know if things change at the table, you know what he wants. See now, in fact, somebody was discussing this with me and they said, well, you know, in those days they were separated by months of travel. So they left it up to the ambassadors. And so that's why God leaves it up to us. We're ambassadors separated by months. You know, he's in heaven, we're here. And he leaves it to us to to make the decision. Loved ones, we're not separated by miles. We're not separated by continents or oceans. In fact, we have an easier uh, job as ambassadors now than they did in those days. And I'll tell you something about those ancient ambassadors. They did not go and stay for years because they found out that when an ambassador went and lived in a foreign land, please don't quit on me, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get done. But when an ambassador went and lived in a foreign land, they found it was very easy for him to take on the personality of that land. So you don't find ambassadors going for years very often. What you find is an ambassador going and then being brought back home, staying at home, then going for another purpose, then back home. It was important for an ambassador to be an ambassador that he lived in the presence of the king. And I don't think that's being taught to our ambassadors. I think what our ambassadors are being taught is the king trusts you. Well, he does trust you because you keep coming home. You keep coming into his presence. I do say this, I believe most decrees and declarations as we see them now are products of our own spirit rather than the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's, let's wrap this up. I, I'm, I'm going to say, say one more thing that could be construed as negative, okay? Um, if you feel that God has called you to a place in prayer or intercession or prophetic or whatever, 
and you say, well, I believe in the concept of ambassador, or I believe in the concept of decrees, you need to understand this. Few, 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 including pastors, few live a life of such intimacy with God that I think they have earned the right to say I'm speaking for him. And that's a frightening thing. Now I believe there are those that do. You say, who do you think? Oh, I'm not. Oh, no, I'd never go there. I'd never say, oh, I don't think they, they're worthy of the title or I don't think they're worth. No, in, in fact, the ones that are worthy might surprise us all. Can I give you an explanation from Mary of how this works? Let's look at the study and administration. This, this clock. Wedding in Cana of Galilee. When they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what have I to do with thee? My hour is not yet come. Boy, that sounds so offensive. You know, if I went home and said to my wife, woman, what's for supper? She would take a couple of deep breaths, look at me and say, wherever you want to go get it. Jesus wasn't being disrespectful. Woman was actually a title of honor. It's the title he used speaking to Mary when he was on the cross, turning her over to John for care. It was not a title of disrespect. I think we all know that. And he said, what, what has this got to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And I tell you, I, this is a very difficult thing because then Jesus turned right around and did what she asked. Well, she didn't really ask specifically for this. She just said, help them. And I tell you what I think was going on. There's a popular teaching, and I even thought it was so sweet that I bought into it for a while. It was the idea that God just loves you so much, and God is in such a good mood that he will ignore Father's plan to give you what you want. Boy, I don't want that. No, that's not love to say, well, I know it's not what Father wants, but I just love you so much. We'll do it. No harm done. No blood, no foul. And I know I'm oversimplifying that. It's not, it's not said that way. But I tell you what I think was happening. I think, number one, I think Jesus already knew what he was going to do. See, Jesus has this thing of asking questions. <laughs> when Jesus asks a question, he already knows the answer and is, and is setting you up for another question. Jesus, they have no food. Well, what should we do? Jesus, it would take a fortune to feed all these people. How are we going to handle it? And the scripture says this, but he already knew what he was going to do. So I think when Jesus said, woman, why are you asking me about it? My, my time's not come. Jesus was beginning to teach something to Mary that was probably more difficult for her than any other person in his life. She carried him. Something that had never happened, the virgin birth, happened to her. She is the one that changed his diapers. I know we don't think Jesus had diapers because he's Jesus, but he had diapers. She's the one that took care of him. She's the one that nourished him and loved on him. 
But Jesus is moving here. See, something's got to happen in the Gospels. Mary's got to move from being the chosen vessel to being on her knees at the day of Pentecost. Something had to happen there. Now, we, we don't believe in what some call Mariolatry. We, we don't worship Mary. We don't think Mary is a co-redemptrix. But we think she is an incredible woman that ought to be learned from and, and honored as much as anyone. But she still had to move to the point from, you know, I know him. He nursed at my breast to kneeling, saying, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me the power that I lack. And I think you say, well, you, you think Jesus was going to do it all along? Yeah, I think so. I'll tell you why. In John, there are seven signs. There are seven things. Jesus did all kinds of miracles. But there were seven special miracles set up, and this is what it says about those miracles. They were seven of all the dozens and dozens of miracles that we know about. And John himself said if, if everything he wrote down was written, the world itself couldn't contain the books. But there were seven that had a special place, seven signs. And of these seven signs, it was this way. If he only did those seven miracles, you could understand his mission. I mean, it's amazing. And the first of them was the water to wine. This is the first of the special signs that he did. No, it was a setup. He went to that wedding, I think, knowing exactly what was going to happen and what he was going to do. And he already had the permission of the father. But Mary had to understand this is not you just me giving you a good idea. Jesus would say later, I only do, I only say what Father tells me to do and say. That, that's foundational. Well, Mary says, when Jesus corrects her, she says to the other workers, she still doesn't know what's going on. She says, look, if he tells you to do something, do it. I mean, that's beautiful. I don't know what he's up to. But if he tells you to do something, just do it. And you know the rest of the story. Um, I think that's a tremendous story. And I think that's where many of us are. Jesus is trying to move us from a theology that says, you're my friend. Do this for me. And I think Jesus is trying to move us from a theology that says, you want me happy so bad that even if God hasn't spoken this to your heart, You'll do it for me. And that's a great, you know, I know the people that say that are trying to talk about, you know, he's in a good mood and he loves us. And he is in a good mood and he does love us. But Jesus needs to move us from the place where we're moving away from finding keys to get him to do what we want him to do. To where we understand that it's only Father's word that gets done. If you'll give me four minutes, I'm going to give you the life lessons. Number one, from Mary, we learn that even the most elevated position does not ensure infallibility or elevated understanding. See, we've got to understand that. We have a tendency to think, boy, I had a good day here, so tomorrow's got to be better. Ask Simon Peter about that. Simon, you are blessed 
because what you just said was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father, which is in heaven. You have a connection with the Father that nobody else seems to connect to. All right. So Peter says, if one declaration's good, two's got to be magnificent. So he makes another one. And Jesus didn't say, Peter, I think you kind of got mixed signals. Maybe the, maybe the neurons and synapses in your brain kind of just crossed over a little bit. You, you're close, but sometimes, no, he just went right to the bottom line. Get behind me, Satan. Loved ones, we need to understand God will give us incredible insight, but that does not elevate you to a place of infallibility. I preached a message when I was in Bible college that was a life changer for an entire church. I mean, it really was. I'm not saying that because it was, it was a life changer. I was floored at what God did. And God did the best thing that could have ever happened to me when I went home a week later. My pastor asked me to preach, and I thought, if it preached good there, it'll preach good here. And I preached it, and it was in one of the top five worst jobs I've ever done preaching. It was a total washout, total collapse. And I was upset. I said, Lord, what's the difference between here and there? I don't know what it was, unless probably arrogance. Number two. From Jesus, we learn the most difficult place to minister is often in the context of home and family. See, loved ones, that's why it's so easy to just hop around, never become part of a church. Because you can skip the hard questions if you just move around everywhere. But if you're going to stay with your family, if you're going to stay with your church, you're going to find that you will find it's not intentional opposition, but you'll find it's more difficult four minutes, my hind leg. You'll find it's more difficult to be used at home than it is anywhere else. See, Jesus laid down the principle, no prophet is without honor except in his own home, his own country. I would understand that easily if he was talking about me or even Billy Graham. Or if he's talking about Pastor Corey, it would be easy for me to understand, well, the reason we're without honor is because our family sees us at our worst. You know, I vent to my wife. She's the one that catches all of this stuff. I can understand why I might not get the honor I want at home. So that makes sense. That's nothing profound. It is profound because the same thing happened to Jesus, and he was perfect. I think there is something, I don't know if it's a result of the fall, I don't know if it's just human nature, but if you commit, that's the hard thing of committing to a church, those around you may be the last ones to accept what God's doing in your life, but it builds character. Here's number three, Mary was learning that our agenda is not necessarily his agenda. See, my agenda can even be good. But what I've got to know is, God, what are you telling me to do? I told you a few weeks ago, months ago, God gave me a message, and it was just very, it was just a few lines. And I thought, Lord, this is, this is a start. This isn't a message. And I said, Lord, please help me put an ending to this. And I want to tell you, I worked for three days 
and I, I dug deep and, went, and I said, I think I've got an ending. I said, in fact, I think this is a good ending. The Lord spoke to me in a way he had never spoken to me before. He, he doesn't use this language talking about my messages. I said, Lord, I think I've got the ending. And I don't have my journal to remember the exact words, but the bottom line of it was, Stephen, that is a magnificent ending to that sermon. It ties this to this, it ties this to this, it ties this to this. It ought to be printed in a preaching journal. And as soon as I got my pride swelling up, because I knew that was from God. He spoke that to me. He said, the only problem is there's not a word of it that I told you to say in this week's message. He kind of hurt my feelings. He said, did you use it? No. No. And I found out he had a whole different direction. Number five or number four, rather, Mary was learning that everything must be cleared or decreed by the Father. We've, we've been talking about that. Um, number five, kingdom observations. I, I tell you what, I think we can deal with that later. Um, there's more I want to say, but obviously we just can't. It's time to go. I will say this. You say what? Let me say this. I think sometimes we can be on the right, in the right book, but not the right page. I think Mary knew something needed to be done, but I don't think she understood that God already had a plan. It's like a man that I had the pleasure of meeting one time in California. It was a story. I think it was told by Chuck Swindoll, but I had a privilege of meeting the man. He wanted to please his... his uh, new daughter-in-law so much. She was, had met his son on the mission field and he wanted to give them the, the uh, reception, wedding and reception of their dreams. And he said, you tell me whatever you want, sweetheart. And she had a thick European accent and she told him what she wanted. Then she came to the reception. She said, I want giant prunes to be served at the reception. He said, what? She said, I want giant prunes to be served at the reception. He said, well, get whatever you want, but I, I've never heard of that. She said, well, maybe it's just a custom in our land. We could never afford it, but I want everybody to eat all the giant prunes they want. And he made it happen. They had all kinds of prunes prepared different way. And when they came up to look at the reception, she broke into tears. She said, I wanted prunes. And he said, these are prunes. And his son started laughing. He said, she's saying, remember she had a thick accent. She's saying prawns, shrimps, giant shrimps. Loved ones, I wonder how many times, because I don't stop long enough to get clear, I wonder how many times I put all my energy into prunes 
when God had something totally else in mind. What, what's, what's God doing? He's getting us ready to serve at another level. I, I've gone over today. Uh, let's see. Are all the pastors here today? Well, I was trying to think of somebody I could blame it on, but if they're here, <laughs> Mike's just volunteering. He said, I can blame it on him. Guys, I had to get this out. Thank you for your incredible patience. Ministry team is coming to the front. I don't know how to end this today except to say God's opening a door for us. God's opening a door for us. Some of you have been here 40 years. Some of you, this is your first time here, but you're sensing God's connecting you and putting you into a place of substance. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. You've been seated a long time. If you are listening online and you need prayer, you want to give your life to Jesus, or you need healing or help, call the number. If you are here and you need prayer for special needs, the ministry team is here for you, especially if you want to give your life to Jesus. But I want to, I, I want to say to everybody, I, I, I'm under a time of conviction right now in my life, unlike many times before. I want to be whatever it is God wants me to be. I want him to do in me anything he wants to do. And I'm not just speaking for me. I'm speaking for the pastors. I'm speaking for the elders. And I believe I'm speaking for you. I, I don't believe this invitation is falling on deaf ears. I need to talk a little bit more about this, but it may be two or three weeks before I can get to it, three or four weeks. But, I, but we'll come back. You don't need to wait to make your decision but draw close to him, draw close to him. And when you, hear, when you hear prunes, be sure that it's prunes. Don't get so excited you heard that you move too fast. I love you so much. Father, do your work in this place. Help us, help us, help us, help us, help us, help us. In Jesus' name.